Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 718 with Dr. Victoria Medvek. If you ever get a little bit nervous when you have to ask for what you want or make a request that's maybe outside the box or negotiate a big raise or job offer or deal of sorts, Vicky has got the goods for you. So you will learn one, four strategies to minimize your negotiation fears. Two, the one thing that even expert negotiators get wrong, and three, the five F's for fearless negotiation. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, please drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP718. And while you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out some goodies like the Gold Nugget email summaries, which provide a summary of the actionable stuff that Vicky says here right to your inbox. You can read that in about two or three minutes each time a new episode goes live. and you unlock the vault of all 718 and counting of these summaries. That's called the Gold Nuggets over at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Vicky's story. Victoria Medvek, PhD, is the Adeline Barry Davey Professor of Management and Organizations at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. In addition, Medvek is a co-founder and executive director of the Center for Executive Women at the Kellogg School and the CEO of Medvek & Associates a consulting firm focused on high-stakes negotiations and strategic decisions. Big thanks to Vicky for sharing her wisdom with us. Big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Vicki. Vicki, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you, Pete. I am so excited to be with you today. Oh, me too. Well, I'd love it if we could jump right in and you maybe kick us off with a story of maybe the most intense or interesting or surprising or creative or high stakes or in some way noteworthy negotiation that you've participated in, either personally or, or as an advisor, consultant, teacher. Well, that's a great question. I include many stories of negotiations in my new book, Negotiate Without Fear, because I am someone who enjoys negotiating myself and I negotiate all the time in the everyday world, but I also advise clients on deals. So I do a lot of advice on mergers and acquisitions and partnership agreements and customer contracts. So I literally am negotiating every single day. But out of all of those negotiations, there's one 
I really remember. Mm. And it's a negotiation that was a very high stakes deal. It was very large. It was involving an international company and the company was doing a big transaction and we were doing a great job in the negotiation and everything was going fantastic. And I kept saying to the CEO, we need to land the plane. And he would say, I think we could just get a little bit more. And I am super aggressive and I always push my clients to be really aggressive. But at some point you have to close the deal, land the plane, finish the deal. And I would say, we have to land the plane. And he would say, I just think we can ink out a little bit more. And I'd say, we've got to land this. We should land this today. And then in the midst of that, a regulatory change happened and the deal fell apart. Ah. And that taught me a very critical lesson, Pete, which is, I think you should go into negotiations and I think you should always be focused on the other side. And you should always be focused on how your differentiators address the other side's pressing business needs. And I think you should always be aggressive in setting your goal by thinking about the weaknesses of the other side's alternatives. And I want you to have a really clear, compelling message about how your differentiators address their needs, convey that message with your offer. But at some point, no matter how aggressive you are, no matter how well it's going, you've got to know when to close the deal. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a key lesson I learned in that negotiation that tempers the fact that I am always trying to get my clients to be aggressive, be willing to ask, be willing to push in the negotiation. I think it's also important to know at what point you need to close it. Mm -hmm. And so in this example, so your client was trying to sell... And then it just no sale because of the regulatory because change. Because of the regulatory change. Oh, boy. And it was a situation where he was a great negotiator. And we had worked together many, many times on a bunch of transactions. And he was ambitious and he was very, very willing to ask. And that's those are all things I prize and treasure. Um, but, you know, I always say everybody pays a price for certainty. Mm -hmm. And some people pay a really high price for certainty. They don't like conflict. They don't want to get involved in the exchange. They pay a super high price for certainty. Those are the people who see a house listed and pay list price so they can get the house and be sure that they have it. Or they go to buy a car and they see the car with the sticker and they buy that sticker because they want to get the deal closed. Some people pay a very high price for certainty. I am a person who pays a low price for certainty. I am willing to engage in the discussion. I don't mind the uncertainty of the interaction. I understand that if I'm using the right channel of communication, I can get a great deal while building the relationship with the other side and minimizing my risk. But some people pay almost nothing for certainty. They want to ink out every single piece of the deal. And that's the situation we were in with that CEO. And we ended up losing that deal. And it's one of the only times I've ever had a deal fall apart. And so it's very memorable because in a sea of success, it's the one challenge that I vividly recall. And I learned a really valuable lesson in it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. That is a, an excellent Kickstarter story. And uh, I'm so excited to dig into the how hence how to be always made your job. But first, maybe let's talk about the why for, I think some of our listeners might say, well, you know, that's cool, but I don't really negotiate that much at work. What would you tell them, Vicki? So I would tell them that everyone needs to negotiate because we need to negotiate to get things done at work. We need to negotiate to get resources, to get staffing. We need to negotiate to get our ideas accepted. So we're all negotiating. 
I also talk a lot about how to negotiate in the everyday world. And I encourage people to actually negotiate in the everyday world because I think that if you never practice, if you only are doing high stakes deals at work where the stakes are really high or negotiating for yourself in your employment situation where the impact is incredibly important, I think then you become somewhat risk averse and you're afraid to try new strategy. So I always encourage people to negotiate in their daily lives, to negotiate at a store, negotiate in a, in a hotel, negotiate with the credit card company, negotiate every day. And it allows you to practice your skills, practice your strategies and become more confident as a negotiator. So for those who say, I never negotiate, I would say you often negotiate. You might just not see yourself as a negotiator. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you. Case made. Well, so the book's called Negotiate Without Fear. Tell us, what are some of the top fears people have when it comes to negotiating and what do we do with them? Right. And you know, what's interesting, Pete, is that these fears are experienced by amateur negotiators as well as expert negotiators. So it's not as though experience reduces the fear. The fears are just different. I think a lot of people fear conflict. I think a lot of novices fear conflict. So they have a lot of fear over the exchange, over getting involved, over having the conversation. But I think experts often fear damaging the relationship, leaving money on the table, losing the deal. Those are all fears that are pervasive that prevent us from maximizing our success when we're in these negotiations. And so what I try to do in the book is to give you strategies that can help you to mitigate those fears by using these strategies, you can maximize your success, take the fear out of the negotiation and be more confident in the interaction. Mm -hmm. And so with these strategies, are they matched a specific strategy to a specific fear or are they sort of overarching or universal strategies that hit whatever fear you happen to have? Right. So it depends on the fear and the strategy itself. So if you think about a fear like losing the deal, that's a huge fear that people have, that if I, if I ask, I might lose the deal, they might walk away. Well, if I were to think about the strategies that would relate to that, there's one set of strategies that's about having the right conversation by putting the right issues on the table. And that is absolutely going to reduce your fear of losing the deal because you're going to engage the other side in the interaction. In the same way, there's a second strategy that's talked about, which is seek the right communication channel. So I talk a lot about seeking synchronicity in negotiation, that you want to say it, not send it, and see them when you say it, right? I'd love to be face-to-face -face in person in their office across the desk from them, but given the current times and given some of the challenge of that, if I can't be face-to-face -face in person, I want to be face-to-face -face on my favorite platform, whether that's Zoom or WebEx or Microsoft Teams or Google Meet. I want to be able to see the other side. So I want to say it, don't send it, and see them when I say it. That also reduces the likelihood that I will lose the deal. And then there's another strategy, which is to go in and deliver multiple offers rather than a single offer. And that also reduces the fear of losing the deal and ensures that you engage the other side. And finally, the strategy of leaving myself room to concede also reduces the fear of losing the deal. So all of those strategies help to mitigate that one fear. And throughout the book, it talks about a lot of strategies to eliminate all of the different fears. Mm-hmm. 
Boy, I'd like to dig into all of those, but let's hear just a couple. When it comes to giving yourself room to concede, what does that look and sound and feel like in practice? So, you know, it's so interesting because some people are afraid to really think about the weaknesses of the other side's best outside alternative or their BATNA, the weaknesses of the other side's best outside option and set their goal based on the weaknesses of the other side's options. So they're afraid to set an ambitious goal. They're afraid that if they go in and they push too hard, that they'll lose the deal or offend the other side or damage the relationship. And I would actually argue that, in fact, you're more likely to damage the relationship and lose the deal if you go in too close to your own bottom line to start the negotiation. So if I come in and I don't leave myself room to concede, I'm negotiating right around my own bottom line. I don't have room to adjust. I can't look concessionary. I can't modify. I think I start to look stubborn. I look inflexible. If I go in, on the other hand, with the super ambitious goal and I actually make my first offer beyond that goal, I have lots of room to adjust, lots of ability to modify. I have lots of room to concede. And I'm going to do two things. I'm going to build the relationship because I look flexible and cooperative, but I'm also more likely to maximize my outcome. So I think that using the right strategies, like leaving myself room to concede, can help me to overcome a number of fears in the negotiation. Mm -hmm. And when you do that conceding, is there a way to do that with more grace? You say, yeah, we're going to need 15,000. And they say, mm, our budget's only 10,000. And you say, okay. Yes. Is there more finesse to it than that? There would certainly be more <laughs> finesse because if I did that, people would be like, well, geez, I could have gotten it for 10,000 all the time, right? And I lose credibility. So I would say that the key to making concessions is to have multiple issues on the table and to really avoid single issue discussions. So I will always tell people that you don't want to talk about one single thing. For example, Pete, when people are negotiating something around their employment package, they should not be having a salary negotiation. Salary is one issue in a package that's about your responsibilities. It's about the timeline for getting things done. It's about addressing the employer's pressing business needs. It's about showing confidence in what you can do and having some performance metric that might be tied to it. It's a bunch of issues. It's not just one issue of salary. If I avoid single issue discussions, it's much easier to create a rationale for concessions. If I'm in and I'm talking about only one thing, it's very hard to concede in a credible way. Because if I do say 15,000 and then you push back and I say, okay, how about 10? The other side is thinking, why didn't you just offer me 10 in the beginning? And I've lost all of my credibility. Mm -hmm. So you do want to have lots of issues on the table so that you can create a rationale for concessions that you make. You know, I like that a lot. And I've, I'm thinking about negotiations in which people are hiring me to speak. In a way, it seems like, okay, well, hey, there's just a number. But no, there are so many things like, hey, is it one keynote or one keynote and several breakouts? Will there be videotaping and what are the rights associated with the videotaping? And hey, if you do a high-end videotaping and it's available to me forever and to the group for a limited time, you know, that's interesting. Or, oh, we don't, I don't have to get on a plane. We could do this remote. Okay. Well, that's genuinely saves a ton of hours. So. Right. No, it's multiple issues, right? It's lots of issues. Right. And you know, one of the things that I also would encourage you to think about when you're thinking through that are, 
I know you have many differentiators. You have a lot of unique skills and competencies that could probably solve problems or address the challenges of the people that you're speaking for. Like you have a huge audience. You have a lot of followers. There's lots of interest in you. What you do with social media might actually help them. So that would also add issues to the table. And, you know, this discussion about putting the right issues on the table is actually something that I cover in depth in chapter two. And the reason is that a lot of negotiators, even expert negotiators, will often negotiate the wrong deal. They have a tendency to negotiate what is standard, what is typical, what always gets discussed. And they don't necessarily put the right issues on the table. And so I always say that you should begin by making a list of your objectives and that your objectives are going to drive your negotiable issues. And in your set of objectives, I would argue there are big four objectives. These are always objectives when I care about the relationship with the other side. So the first objective should always be to address the other side's pressing business needs. And the second objective should always be to build the relationship. And I would say more specifically, build the relationship with whom, in what time period, what are you trying to do? The third objective is essential, which is to differentiate yourself. And the fourth objective is to maximize your outcome, whatever that looks like in the particular situation you're in. But if you want to maximize your outcome, you have to think about the first three objectives. And in particular, you want to think about differentiating yourself and addressing the other side's pressing business needs because you want to create a rationale for your offer that's about how your differentiators address their needs. And that's going to give you a focus on them rather than yourself. It's going to allow you to focus on a package of issues rather than a single issue. It's going to give you the ability to craft a really good story that will be compelling to them and engage them in the discussion. And that's what we cover in chapter two. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And I also wanted to follow up on, you mentioned multiple offers and you even got an acronym, multiple equivalent simultaneous offers. Yes. And Vicki, I don't know, did you invent that acronym? I did not. No. Okay. So I am not the person who came up with the idea of mesos. I'm the person who's the biggest fan of them in the world. So I love using multiple equivalent simultaneous offers. And while I didn't create the concept of going in and giving the other side three options rather than one, I did create a lot of the ideas around how to do that effectively. So it starts out by thinking about the issues that I've got on the table. And I actually encourage people to lay out their issues on an issue matrix where you think about sort of a two by two table where the X axis, that horizontal axis is about what's important to you. And that really goes from easy for me to give up to very important to me. And that Y axis, the vertical axis is what's important to the other side. And that goes from easy for the other side to give up to very important to the other side. So you would end up with four quadrants and that quadrant that is really, really highly important to you and highly important to them is the quadrant we call contentious issues. And there are always contentious issues on the table. You're never in a negotiation where there's not a contentious thing to be discussed. But the key is to not only have contentious issues on the table. In fact, the quadrant that matters the most is that quadrant that is high on Y and low on X. It's really, really important to the other side and it's easy for you to offer up. Those we call storytelling issues. 
And you want to have more storytelling issues on the table than anything else. You want lots and lots and lots of storytelling issues. Because when I have more storytelling issues, two things happen. I can make the story focus on them rather than myself, which is a huge advantage. And in addition, I have more fodder to use to get what I want on contentious and trade-off issues. Trade-off issues are those things that are super important to me and easy for the other side to offer up. So I want to lay out that issue matrix because when I lay out an issue matrix and I think about my differentiators and I've got a differentiation chart, I have the two ingredients I need to use to make a multiple offer in a very effective way. And while I didn't create the concept of going to the table with three options, I did create the format of how to structure the multiple offers to really be the most compelling at communicating your message to the other side. And that's laid out in chapter seven in the book. In fact, I always tell my students to read chapter seven twice because using multiple offers is a strategy that's going to give you huge advantage in your everyday negotiations and your negotiations at work and your negotiations on behalf of yourself. And in that chapter, there are examples of all types of multiple offers being used and being communicated to the other side. Mm -hmm. Well, could you share with us perhaps one of the quickest and simplest examples that come to mind? for doing the multiple equivalent simultaneous offers and a storytelling issue within there? Sure. So let's take an example we can all relate to, which is a situation where we might be negotiating for ourselves. You know, in the current environment of what's sometimes called the great resignation or otherwise called the great reshuffle, you see a lot of people that are negotiating with their employers. And you also see a lot of people that are negotiating with new employers. The first thing I would say to all of your listeners is never, ever leave your job without negotiating. So, you know, so many people, Pete, leave because they're frustrated by something and they don't negotiate before they depart. And that is a huge mistake because they might be able to modify something that they dislike. They might be able to get something that they really wanted in terms of a role or responsibility or flexibility. So it's always important to ask before you leave and to recognize that I can absolutely ask. In fact, if you think about it, Pete, in a situation where I am working with my current employer and I want to think about my goal in the negotiation with my current employer versus a new employer, Remember, the way I come up with my goal is to think about the weaknesses of the other side's options. It's far more likely that my current employer has weaker options than a new employer does because my current employer is relying upon me right now. I'm certain, I'm known, they understand what I'm capable of doing. They would have to do that work themselves. So when you think about it, I can have a more ambitious goal with my current employer and I should take the opportunity to go in and make an ask but I should never start that conversation without a plan. And in that plan, I want to think about addressing the employer's pressing business needs. I want to think about differentiating myself. I want to think about continuing to build the relationship. And I definitely want to think about maximizing my outcome, whatever that looks like in terms of salary or bonus or flexibility in my work or anything that that maximizing looks like. So from that list of objectives, I'm going to come up with a lot of issues. Salary will be a contentious issue. It's really, really important to you and it's really, really important to me. It's in that contentious quadrant. 
but a storytelling issue might be something that I am uniquely positioned to do. So maybe some responsibility that I could take on that I'm really qualified to do. In the book, I have an example of a woman who works in Boston in a company where she is in a marketing role. And she's very interested in becoming a VP for sales. And she has a long history of doing sales when she lived in South America. She has lots of experience in sales, but is currently working in marketing. But the company needs revenue and they're interested in getting some South American business and moving into some South American markets. Well, she's perfectly positioned to help the company to do that. She speaks Spanish and she's one of the only people in the Boston office that speaks Spanish to help do the interviews and bring the team on board to help expand business into South America. She has a knowledge about those markets and could do briefings for the senior leaders on those different markets and what markets might be most attractive. She could even do updates for the team on some of the cross-cultural differences to be aware of as you move into South America. And she's really confident that if she was the VP leading the business there, they would be able to generate revenue very rapidly. And she's willing to put a bet on her ability to generate that revenue. If you think about that situation, her salary will be a contentious issue. The updates, the briefings, And the bet on her performance would all be in the storytelling quadrant. Doing the hiring in Spanish would also be a storytelling issue. Mm -hmm. So we've got all those responsibilities are in that storytelling quadrant. And then the trade-off issue in that situation would be probably her title. Um, She wants to be a VP and that title might be a trade-off issue. And, you know, sometimes title is more contentious And maybe the internal title would be contentious, but maybe her external title, so she would have the credibility and the ability to get things done in South America, would be a trade-off issue. So she would go into that negotiation, and using that matrix, she would develop three offers. And in those three offers, she would vary the responsibilities across what she's going to do in North America versus South America. And in one of those offers, she would put a bet on her ability to generate revenue within a year in South America. Like a contingent bonus. She would have a contingent bonus, exactly. I recommend people, when they're negotiating for themselves, that they always use a contingent bonus based on performance in one of their three options. I don't think you're always going to end up with employers who want to do that, but I think it's always important that you put it in there because, Pete, as you've probably picked up, That shows that I'm confident in what I can do. I'm confident in what I can contribute. I'm awesome at my job, right? Mm -hmm. I'm willing to show that I'm confident in what I can deliver. And that's a very important message in that employment situation. So that's how you would create the multiple offer. And that's how you would think about the issue matrix leading to that multiple offer. Mm, Beautiful. Thank you. Okay, that's good and clear. And so then you've got a nice little framework, the five F's of fearless negotiation. Could you walk us through them? Sure. So I always talk about getting ready, getting prepared up front, and I have lots of steps on how to get ready. And then I talk about the five F's when you go to the table. So the five F's are that you want to go first. You get a huge advantage from leading the negotiation. So I want to go first. I want to focus on them. I should always focus on the other side, not myself. I actually tell people to be a pronoun checker. If I'm talking about I, me, we, us, I'm talking about the wrong side. I would say if your first line in your negotiation includes your name, you're talking about the wrong side. You want to focus on them. So I want to go first. I want to focus on them. 
I want to frame my offer correctly. So when I want to get people to do something new, change and do something new, I'm generally going to highlight loss words to get them to move off that status quo. And when I want them to maintain the status quo, I'm probably going to highlight gain words. So I use a framing piece. So go first, focus on them, frame the offer correctly, be flexible, leave yourself room to concede and use multiple offers. And then the fifth and final F is no feeble offers. And this is a key one because people make feeble offers all the time. People will walk into a store and they'll see a shirt sitting there with a snag and they might take it up to the department clerk and say, could you take something off? That's a feeble offer. People will go to a customer and they'll say, could you give me more business? That's a feeble offer. People will go into a company where their products are displayed on shelves and they'll say, could you give us better shelf space? That's a feeble offer. You want to make a clear, specific ask. So in that store, you don't want to say, could you take something off? You want to say, gosh, look at this snag. I mean, I feel bad. You're not going to be able to sell this. And I bet you even work on commission and you won't be able to sell it. I would take it off your hands if you give me a 35% discount. That's a clear, specific ask. Leaving myself room to concede, but with a clear, specific ask. Mm -hmm. And in all those cases, I want to go first. I want to focus on them. I want to frame my offer correctly. I want to make sure I'm being flexible, leaving myself room to concede and using multiple offers. And I want to remember always no feeble offers. I like that Stantisha example because we went through those five Fs right there and focus on the other side. It could be just that quick. Oh, you probably aren't going to be able to sell this and you might be out. And so it's like, that's exactly right. Less than a sentence. And you won't be able to sell it. You're going to lose the sale is actually a frame of a lost frame. That's exactly right. So it uses all five of the Fs. Well, so now that's funny. I was just having a conversation with a business partner of mine who's doing some business development with a cold email outreach sequence. And I was intrigued that in it, he had, um, it's like, would you be available for 15 minutes at 2 p.m. Eastern on Tuesday? And I thought, oh, that's really interesting. Like, I don't know how I'd feel about that, but it is not a feeble request. It's a clear, specific ask. It's not feeble. And in fact, I might even say that he might have wanted to say, I know that this challenge is confronting you and I want to provide some information to help. Would you be available at two o'clock on Wednesday, three o'clock on Thursday or four o'clock on Friday? Let me know which of the three times would be most convenient for you. Think about that. That's a multiple offer. And what you just did is change the frame of the discussion. You just framed it from when are we going to meet? right? To do, are we going to meet? You're not, you're not talking about, are we going to meet anymore? You're talking about when are we going to meet? So you literally change the frame to when are we going to meet instead of, are we going to? And that assumptiveness that comes with multiple offers really helps people to get better outcomes. We know from research that people who use multiple offers get better outcomes than people who use a single offer, but not only do they get better outcomes, they also create stronger relationships, that using multiple offers helps you to build the relationship at the same time that you're maximizing your outcome. And so it's a great strategy to use. Mm-hmm. Intriguing. And let's talk about that assumptiveness. So sometimes, I guess when I've been on the receiving end of it, sometimes I don't like it. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's fine. <laughs> it's like, okay, you're disqualified and we're moving on to the next prospect. No, I think that's right. I think sometimes we don't like it, but I would oh. say when we don't like it, it's usually because it's done poorly. And what I mean by that is 
sometimes people are assumptive, but they talk about themselves, not you. So I think that people like it better if I am assumptive, but focused on them rather than focused on myself. And it's also better if when I'm being assumptive, I don't make this statement as though I know all about your life or I know what's going on with you, but instead that I may be assumptive using some third-party data. Like I know from the last analyst call that you were really worried about this. I understand that you're challenged with this. Your CEO has mentioned concerns about this. I would love to help with those things. And, you know, in reality, I don't think that the cold email is going to be the most effective strategy because remember, I say, say it, don't send it and see them when you say Mm -hmm. it. So I'm not a big proponent of the cold email no matter what. But I think that when I'm in a conversation with you and I'm focused on you and being assumptive and my entire offer is focused on how my differentiators can address your needs, you're going to find a presumptiveness to be less problematic than if I'm focused on what I want to do or why I want to do it or why it's important to me and talking about myself. And that's a huge factor in negotiation. I would say that that's a big switching factor, that a lot of people who go into negotiations are very egocentric. They're very, very focused on themselves and what they want to get. And when you can switch that to focus in on the other side, their problems, their challenges, their needs, you're going to be far more effective in every one of those interactions. Mm-hmm. Thank you. For your go first point, I know this is hotly debated and studied in negotiation circles. Can we hear your hot take? Yes. You are in the go first camp. I am squarely in the go first Uh camp, very broadly in the go first camp. But I would argue that people who are not in the go first camp are banking that on a lot of information that came out many, many years ago, where some people would say, you know, he who speaks first loses. But that advice wasn't based on any research. The research on this is abundantly clear that people who make first offers get better outcomes than people who follow. When I lead, I get four advantages. When I lead, I get to create the starting point and I get to create an anchoring effect from that. People get anchored by numbers and they insufficiently adjust off of those initial estimates. When I lead, I get that anchoring advantage. But when I lead, I also get to set the table with the issues we're going to discuss. So I get to ensure that we're not just talking about salary, right? We're not just talking about price. I get to set the table with what are we talking about? So if I'm going to talk to a customer, I'm not just talking about the price. I'm talking about the security of their supply chain and how it was threatened during COVID. And I need to ensure that they never run out of product in the future. So I want to create redundancy in the supply chain and ship them product from multiple locations because I want them to always be able to have the product they need. That's the topic of the conversation. I just framed that. I framed it by setting the right issues on the table and framing the conversation around loss rather than gain. So when I go first, I get to get that anchoring advantage. I get to set the table. I get to frame the conversation. And I'm in the relationship enhancing position. Think about it for a minute, Pete. If I go first, I come in, I make an offer. You have to react. You have to respond. You have to critique. You have to criticize. If you go first, I have to critique. I have to criticize. I have to tell you what's wrong. Mm -hmm. I don't want to start by telling you what's wrong with your offer. I want to start by coming in, 
making that first offer, building the rationale and having you react to that offer instead. So when I go first, I get a lot of advantages and research has really revealed that. That research is not that old. It's probably been done in the past 15 years, but it shows very clearly that you get a big advantage from going first, but that you have to get prepared so that you can effectively go first. Because if I don't know enough about the weaknesses of the other side's alternatives, if I haven't thought hard enough about what would they do if they didn't do this deal with me, if I haven't thought through that, I might make a first offer that actually isn't ambitious enough and leaves money on the table. So I want to be careful about that. And there is one exception to this rule. So I want to make sure that I talk about the exception And that is in job negotiations. So in employment situations, you often do not get to lead. And the reason you don't get to lead is because you can never start to negotiate until they've said they want to hire you. So you have to have the offer of employment on the table before you start the negotiation. And often, as you know, Pete, the offer of employment contains the terms of that offer. And because of that, the employer often leads. Now, as you become more senior, it's more likely that they'll say something like, we want to hire you. Let's sit down and talk about what it would take. And then you can lead. But when you're young, and I know many of your listeners are young and starting out in their careers or midway through their careers, they may not be able to lead in the negotiation because Unless the other side has said, I want to hire you, you can't start to negotiate. So you have to wait for that offer of employment before you start to negotiate. Mm -hmm. Understood. Thank you. Okay. Well, so now I'd love it if we could get into some specific words and phrases that you really love and you really don't (laughs) in the course of having a negotiation conversation. So What are some things that are pet peeves of yours or you recommend we avoid like the plague versus words and phrases that I know there's no such magical word that's going to just make everyone immediately comply. But nonetheless, there's things that help and things that hurt. And I want to hear them. I want to tell you something. So today, actually, I was helping one of my clients with the negotiation and I was listening to them and they said, well, like Vicky says, um, you know, this is my best and final offer. And I literally was like jumping to take myself off mute and get in there. And so I said, I would never, ever, 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 never, ever say that's my final offer or that's my best and final offer or take it or leave it. So those are all words that I hate. I think those are words in negotiation that puts you in a corner and you want to remain flexible. You want to be able to get the agreement. So you don't want to get backed into a corner. So I always say, don't use the words best and final. Don't say this is my final offer. Don't say take it or leave it. And I would also say, don't push the other side into a corner. Don't ask them for their best and final. Don't say to them, is that your final offer? Don't say to them things like, I thought you said you couldn't do that. You want them to remain flexible. You want to remain flexible. So you want to stay out of that corner. And so those are some of my least favorite words. Another least favorite word is, I'll send it to you. Because remember, I say, say it, don't send it, and see them when you say it. I want to be in a synchronous channel. Face-to-face is best in person. Face-to-face on a platform is second best. I want to make sure that I'm saying it and seeing them when I'm saying it. So that would be another less least favorite word is, I'll send it to you. And then I would say in terms of the favorite camp, what do I really like? I love a story about 
how my differentiators address your needs. So I love a story that highlights some differentiator you have addressing a problem the other side has, a challenge that they're confronting, a a situation that they're struggling with. I love those phrases. I like to use words like, I think there are multiple ways that we could come at this. And that gets me into my multiple offers. So I love focusing on them. I love giving options. And I love signaling flexibility by talking about the different ways that we could do this and how I want to be flexible in figuring out what would work best for them. Those are some of my favorite words. Uh-huh. Beautiful. Thank you. Well, Vicki, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. Oh, well, I hope that as people look at the book, they think about the examples as being there for a purpose, which is to give you vivid examples of how you can use the strategies. It's not a book that just dumps a bunch of strategies on people. There are hundreds of stories of everyday people using the strategies, of business executives using the strategies, of newcomers in business using the strategies, and of people using the strategies to negotiate for themselves. So I hope they take a look at the book so that they can find those stories, see the examples, and really get a sense of how they can use those ideas to improve their negotiation success. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. Now, could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? So I have this quote that I love. It's from Eleanor Roosevelt, and it says, never allow a person to tell you no who doesn't have the power to say yes. And I think that is a perfect negotiation quote by Eleanor Roosevelt. I always think about that one. Okay. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a piece of research? So my favorite research is probably the research by Kahneman and Tversky on prospect theory. So this research was done in the 1970s. And prospect theory is the theory that highlights that people are risk-averse in gains and risk-seeking and losses. And it's what leads to my advice that if you want to maintain the status quo, you highlight gain in your rationale. And if you want to move off the status quo, you highlight loss. And Danny Kahneman is one of my co-authors. It's He's one of my two Nobel Prize winning co-authors. He's an amazing individual. And I think that this research is fantastic. And I really would say to people, it is one of the most important things you can understand is how to use framing as an influence tactic. I think it's incredibly important for everyday interaction, time at work, time with family. I think it's a really important thing to understand. So I would take a look at prospect theory. All right. Thank you. And a favorite book? I would say my own book, Negotiate Without Fear, is certainly one of my favorites right now because I just finished writing it. Um, Prior to that, there's a book by Robert Cialdini called Influence that I absolutely love. And I also really like a book by my academic advisor for my PhD, Thomas Gilovich, and it's called How We Know What Isn't So. And what you think about is the How We Know What Isn't So book focuses on decision-making. And I have to understand decision-making and decision biases to understand what Cialdini is talking about in Influence. And then I use both those decision-making pieces of information and influence to negotiate well. And that's what I cover in Negotiate Without Fear. So those are my top three books. All right. And a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job. So I use 
the issue matrix all the time. And I mentioned it to your listeners today, and I really find it to be a very helpful tool. I lay out all my issues before I start a conversation to make sure that I'm actually going to have the right conversation. And I find this tool is really, really helpful to me getting ready for a discussion. But I also find that the tool is incredibly helpful to people who are coaching others. Because I think so often when we're coaching someone to go into a negotiation or go into a discussion with a customer, we often have a conversation with them and we spend a long time trying to figure out what are they going to say. I have a chief revenue officer who likes to say that her team spends a lot of time auditing what people are going to do rather than coaching on what they should do. And I think a part of why they're auditing what they're going to do is they're literally spending, you know, 45 minutes of the one hour meeting figuring out what are they going to say. And I find that the issue matrix is a coach's dream tool because if I have people lay out those issues and I can look at what they're planning to talk about, I immediately know if they're going to have the right discussion. And so I can revert from auditing for 45 minutes to coaching for 45 minutes instead. So I think it's a powerful tool for me as an individual and a powerful tool for me as a coach. Uh And a favorite habit? exercise. Um, So I have found that getting some exercise every day is a really helpful thing for my performance. And I have to be honest with you, I was not an exercise person before. And I realized that the reason I was never exercising is because I never found time in my schedule to do it. So I started to book exercise appointments. And during the pandemic, I booked them virtually. So as soon as we get off this call, I'm going to have my virtual bar class within a trainer who's going to hold me accountable to being there at that exact moment in time and doing my workout. And I find that is a habit that has really paid off both in terms of better health and a lot more energy. Beautiful. And is there a key nugget you share that seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you often. So there is a line I use all the time, which relates actually to the title of my book. And that line is always be fearless. So I want people to go in and be fearless as they approach negotiation, but also to be fearless as they approach everyday situations, to be fearless and confident. And I say it all the time. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? I would point them to my email, which is victoriamedvec at medvecandassociates.com or to my website. So I think my website and my email are both great ways to get in touch with me. And I would be delighted to hear from your listeners. Uh And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? So my final challenge for people being awesome in their jobs is to encourage them to go out and negotiate. Don't be afraid to ask. Ask on behalf of your company and ask on behalf of yourself. Many people do not negotiate for themselves. And I know from looking at your demographics of your listeners that a lot of your listeners are female. I think 73% or something are female. And one of the things I would say is a lot of women don't ask. Women are far less likely to negotiate for themselves than their male colleagues are. And that's widely known. But what's often not known is that while lots of women don't ask, many men don't ask either. This is a problem that crosses is gender. People don't negotiate for themselves. And so I would encourage them to go in, always be fearless and be willing to ask and ask for themselves with the right issues on the table and the right strategy. 
All right, Vicki, this has been a treat. I wish you many fearless negotiations and fun times in the future. Thank you so much, Pete. It was an absolute delight to spend time with you and your listeners today. And I hope that they find some tools and strategies that will help them to be awesome at their job. I loved Vicky's t-shirt example so much, <laughs> particularly how she wove a loss frame in there effortlessly. Oh, you probably work at commission. You might not be able to get anything for this. As well as when we talked about the supply chain loss frame, like I was super impressed at how quickly and seamlessly and effortlessly and not like intimidatingly, like rattle saber or threatening kind of a way she was able to introduce a loss frame into that. And boy, I'm going to be listening to that again and reflecting next time I've got a higher stakes negotiation coming up. How might we ensure that I get each of those F's integrated? And it might happen within less than 30 seconds as Vicky demonstrated. So such good stuff. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items that we've referenced are over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP718. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.